Hello everyone and welcome to Creation.Live. I'm Dr. Brian Thomas. In each episode of this show, ICR scientists will gather with subject matter experts, apologists, and other special guests to discuss pressing issues, whether that be current research at ICR, new information that has come to light in the scientific community, or something else entirely that impacts how science ultimately points to our Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever the topic, we hope these conversations are encouraging and enlightening in an increasingly chaotic world. Today I have with me several guests. Dr. Hebert here on my left, Dr. Jim Johnson, and Dr. Randy Galuza. Dr. Hebert, physics. Dr. Jim has expertise in theology and law. Uh, Dr. Galuza, our, our president here, expertise in engineering and medicine. Good to be with you guys again today. Yes. And uh, last time was our first episode, and we talked about natural selection. And we basically uh, highlighted a bunch of quotes from people who believe in evolution, experts, scientists, and philosophers of science. And we basically, we basically rolled through a lot of quotes and talked about them, and he, he, what's the upshot of those quotes? They doubt Darwinism. Specifically, Darwinists are doubting Charles Darwin's main contribution, supposedly, <laughs> supposed contribution, which is natural selection. And, Charles, and we quoted from Charles Darwin himself, and we looked at what he meant when he talked about natural selection and what he brought to the table. And he really, what we determined was he brought a, a whole new way to think. You know, it wasn't just some simple little principle. It was, um, it was a whole paradigm. And uh, um, part of that paradigm had to do with ascribing... Um, creator-like powers, and literally one of the quotes said, it has the power to create. Uh, it used the word power. Creator-like powers to this, this entity that he called natural selection. And so we want to pick up with that discussion and ask the question now, uh, is Darwin's comparison of nature to a human breeder a legitimate analogy? So we recognize that there's such thing as a legitimate analogy. Anybody have an example of, an, of a legitimate analogy that we might use in science? Can I use like sunrise? And so the sun isn't necessarily physically rising, but in relation to where the way we look at it, it's, it looks like a sunrise, so we can talk about it in those terms and it works fine. Any others? Legitimate analogy you can think of? You could say that the different heavenly bodies are choreographed like a, a very precisely de designed movements. The solar system, the sun, the moon, all of those different movements. It's, it's like a very careful dance. So it's like an enormous Swiss watch. Um, and, and you can talk about it in terms of choreography, but a literal choreographer is a person with a mind who takes people and says, you stand here and you dance there and then you do this and organizes the situation. And, 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 but what we see, we don't see a, a cosmic, we can't see physically a cosmic choreographer, but we see the effects of, of, of organization, certainly in the heavenlies and, and elsewhere. So there's legitimate, but then there's sometimes illegitimate. So what, and so it's one thing for guys like us who already have, you know, committed to, we believe what the Bible teaches about where we came from. That's kind of where we stand. It's one thing for us to say, we don't think Darwin used a legitimate analogy. And uh, so, but because 
because there's a perception that our bias would cloud our objectivity, right? We just want to go to the literature. Let's look at what people who are devoted to Darwin and Darwinism say about, about this. And so we're gonna, we're gonna look at some more quotes today and, and look at this question of, is it legitimate? Uh, and uh, the first one we've got here to look at is by the late atheist uh, Jerry Fodor. Um, and he said this, so what's the moral of all this? Most immediately, it's that the classical Darwinist account of evolution as primarily driven by natural selection is in trouble on both conceptual and empirical grounds. I don't want to come up for air on the first quote because we've got a lot of quotes to get through, but boy, that is telling. I, I just got to say, it's in trouble on conceptual, in other words, nobody knows how it could work conceptually, and empirical, no one sees it is working, so it is in trouble, according to this uh, Darwinist. Um, Darwin was too much an environmentalist he seems to have been seduced by an analogy to selective breeding with natural selection operating in place of the breeder. But this analogy is patently flawed. Selective breeding is performed only by creatures with minds, and natural selection doesn't have one of those. The alternative, po alternative possibility to Darwin's is that the Direction of phenotypic change is very largely determined by endogenous variables. So going back to last episode's discussion, we talked about externalism, and Darwin made this great shift. He kind of tilted everything on upside down, saying the reason you see creature features so well designed is because it's apparent design, and the environment did the design accidentally. Uh, and, and this guy, Fodor, says that's not what we see. We see... Um, Darwin was too much of an externalist, and the alternative is internalism, or he uses the word here, um, endogenous, which just means inside the organism. Uh, the, the current literature suggests that alterations in the timing of genetically controlled developmental processes is often endogenous, so inside the organism. That's what he notices. Uh, we also have a statement by William Dembski, a prominent intelligent design advocate, he said this, in short, evolutionary biology needs a designer substitute to coordinate the incidental changes that hereditary transmission passes from one generation to the next, and there's only one natural, naturalistic candidate on the table, to wit, natural selection. Indeed, it's no accident that the word selection and the word intelligence are etymolog etymologically related the lecan selection has the same root as the lig in intelligence, both derive from the same Indo-European root meaning to gather and therefore to choose. Darwin's claim to fame was to argue that natural forces, lacking any purposiveness or prevision of future possibilities, likewise have the power to choose via natural selection. In ascribing the power to choose to unintelligent natural forces, Darwin perpetuated the greatest intellectual swindle in the history of ideas. Nature has no power to choose. And the late geneticist and evolutionary theorist Richard Lewontin of Harvard observed something similar. He said, Darwin quite explicitly derived this understanding of the motivating force underlying evolution from the action of plant and animal breeders 
who consciously choose variant individuals with desirable properties to breed for future generations. Natural, and he puts that word in quotes, natural selection is human selection writ large. But of course, whatever nature, and he puts that in quotes, may be, it is not a sentient, that is an intelligent creature with a will. And any attempt to understand the actual operation of evolutionary processes must be freed of its metaphorical baggage. Yeah, and following on right onto that, we actually had a, a recent discussion just last year from another intelligent design advocate who, who was actually a, an agnostic, and the evidence kind of won him over. His name is Neil Thomas. He's a linguist at the University of Durham, or he, he's a retired professor now. He pointed out that Darwin, against the objections of Wallace and other colleagues who pointed out to him that there was simply no comparison between what animal breeders did by the use of human ingenuity and how mindless nature herself acted, claimed an analogy between the artificial breeding methods of such persons as pigeon fanciers and the claimed selection performed by nature herself. And interestingly, it's worth noting the title of that article. It's natural selection, a conceptually incoherent term. Yep. That yeah. Was, uh, yeah, that yeah. was really what caught my attention yeah. here. Yeah. And, and just to fill in, the reason why, which we were not even going to discuss here, but that he was bringing up while it was conceptually incoherent, is Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, was to be translated into German. So it had to go from one language to another. And you have to talk about nature selecting, and they could not translate that concept into German. They completely struggled over it because it just makes no logical sense. And so when you had to go from something which was kind of misleading in English to go into German, they really struggled back and forth. There were multiple people who have basically failed at translating that idea. Wow. Uh, gentlemen, greatest intellectual swindle in the history of ideas. That's a huge claim. I mean, how can this be? Uh, and is it really? Are we, have we been swindled? Are our minds duped by this? by this uh, a concept that uh, natural selection is doing what a human breeder would do, but it's just doing it a lot better? I mean, isn't that Darwin's main uh, yeah. argument? Yeah. Yeah. I was swindled. I'll admit okay. it. You were <laughs> I was swindled. I got swindled. For many, many years, I was a swindled person because I would use it as an operative force and say something like, I, was think I thought I was like limiting it. All natural selection can do is. All it can do is. And I thought, oh, I'm limiting its, its, its influence. But the mere fact, the moment I said it can do, as if it was a breeder, I've, I've really given away the farm. Now, these, we just read these really revealing quotes. And these gentlemen are, are looking at, these are, you know, these are critiquing evolution, critiquing Darwinism. And they're just trying to think through what did Darwin pull off? And they're, they're the ones saying, this is not a legitimate analogy. So let's, let's explore that a little bit more. And in your own words, what makes it illegitimate to, to refer to nature as though it is a, is a breeder? And so Darwin did talk about in his book, for example, the pigeon breeders. And he looked at pigeons and he said, you can cross this kind of pigeon with that 
variety of pigeon, and then you can get longer feathers or shorter feathers or this color plumage or that color, and um, and look at the power, and, and you know of this selector, and then um, wh why can't nature? Why can't we say that nature does that? Well, I mean, the, I think the quotes make it pretty obvious because nature doesn't have a mind. I mean, it's you know, it, it's uh, and the thing that really strikes me about um, a lot of these quotes here is you've got some creationists arguing that this is a simple concept. Well, apparently not, because if it were, the evolutionists wouldn't be arguing about it. And there's, you know, it, you know, they say, oh, it just simply means differential survival or reproduction. Well, if that's all it is, why is there such an argument? Why, why are they debating this? In other words, if it's so plain and obvious, yes. why are we? Yes, not right. Why are they yeah. dissenting? From, yes. from the view. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question, a good point. Uh, but maybe it's simplicity in the way that it sounds. Maybe that's what, was le le what lay at the core of, of the swindle itself. It's, it's like it just sounds so simple. And we, I think, uh, as humans, we tend to want to uh, be able to say, oh, nature selects just like a breeder selects. Done. Case closed. Problem solved. It's simple, and we and we take it on board just because it's so absorbable, um, not because we've carefully thought through. Is it really a legitimate analogy? Is this how nature actually works? Um, but because it's just so simple, and once we absorb that, you guys tell me what I'm thinking. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong. I'm just sort of off the cuff here, but you know when we absorb these simple concepts. And it, it basically enables us to, mm, to succumb to our laziness <laughs> when, when we don't want to go through the work of analyzing you know, counterexamples or of, uh, of critiquing and thinking through the process, whatever it may be. So there, I don't know, I, I, I don't, is that true in your life that you've <laughs> yeah, that that was it. felt that way? Yeah. And I think it's not just laziness, but you know, as, as creationists, we have limited manpower. I mean, we, we don't have enough people to do all the work that needs to be done. And so it takes a huge amount of time to delve into the literature like Dr. Galusa has. You know, most people haven't done that. You know, Dr. Galusa has read The Structure of Evolutionary Theory by Stephen Jay Gould, that monster book. How many creationists, have, how many evolutionists have read that book? Probably not too many. Yeah. That was, a that was a very revealing book. I mean, I, I didn't really understand evolutionary theory, even though I was in the business of refuting evolutionary theory until I read this book and it really explained the history of the ideas and where they came from and why they developed and why they were important in the theory. And um, I think you hit on a good point. It's, it's the fact that you know, we really need to take the time to delve into this and these gentlemen have thought about it. They've thought about it carefully, and as they thought about it, they said, almost like, wait, wait, wait a second here. Is that analogy fundamentally, at the very beginning, even a, a legitimate analogy? Is it, is it bona fide? Can he do that? And then I think later on, as we discuss, they're going to see why Darwin, why it was so important to Darwin to make this analogy in order to get this whole idea of selective ability onto nature. 
And that's why even as Alfred Russell Wallace, who was, uh, was kind of credited with co-discovering with Charles Darwin, he said, drop that term selection, let it go. But Darwin could not let it go because it served such an important purpose in his theory. I've got in my notes here uh, that Darwin cleverly cloaked the agency inside an analogy. He cleverly cloaked an agency inside an analogy. In other words, he said, so what do we mean by agency? Do you, so who, who, who wants to chime in on that? Agency, what does that mean? It's, a, it's a, like a, a God has agency, I have agency. I can exercise independent volition. I exercise independent will. I can bring things about. I can work in these ways. And so um, God is an independent agent, and he's, he has uh, given agency to humans. He's even seems like he gives it to a lot of animals. They can exercise agency too. It's this ability to exercise will, forethought, um, volition, all of those kinds of things. So as, an, so as an agent, you have the ability to think, I want to go there, and then you have legs that actually take you there. Or you have the ability to think, I want to build a cell phone, and then you have the expert, you develop the expertise and you build whatever it is you want to build, and so we can, we can do these, make these decisions and make these things happen. And so Darwin is saying nature can make these things happen, but doesn't have the mind, but it accidentally happens anyways. So there's this, this switch. It's like, well, wait, wait a minute, how can nature do this if nature doesn't even have a mind? And that's what these guys are, are bringing out, I thought. You were going to say? A um, couple things come to mind. Darwin's goal is to replace God with nature. So the creation that God made, we can call that nature. And if we use the word nature, we, we get away from the word creation, which reminds us you need a creator. So he's not going to want to use the word creation a lot. He's going to use the word nature. He wants nature to invent itself. And the problem with that is, in order for that to happen, nature has to have the ability to think, as you all have said, um, and the ability to take actions that implement a decision. And when you think about it, when you're making a choice, when you're making a decision, you actually have some kind of values, some kind of, uh, it may not be a real complicated value system, but you have to have preferences that, that this particular choice is better than this choice for whatever reason. And so how can nature, which doesn't have a personality, isn't a person, have a preference for this kind of squirrel rather than that kind of squirrel or this kind of snake rather than this bird? Why would nature have a preference in order to make a choice to favor or to disfavor or to give a privilege? All of these anthropomorphic terms, um, they betray the fact that you can't get something that has no personhood to take personal actions. And agency is, is actions that involve thinking, having a preference, making a choice, and then putting that choice into action. That makes sense. But in reading Origin of Species, he doesn't really say it that way. Oh, he, I, he, I wouldn't he expect him to. Right. Darwin doesn't say, nature has the ability to choose. Nature, ha you know. Nature is making these selections because nature has these values built in and it's able to, to, to decide this, that, and that. He never says that. He says nature just happens to act like a breeder. So he just 
says, it's a breeder. It's like a breeder. And so he's, so there's the switch. There's the shove it under the rug of this analogy. Whoop. But if we, so what these guys are doing, they're looking, they're lifting up the rug and they're going, okay, well, nature doesn't literally actually have the ability to think or to, or to decide, but what's going on inside this analogy? Is the analogy legitimate? And it turns out that it's kind of like empty because, uh, because as these guys just said, human breeders have all those things, have those, have those attributes of agency. Well, so these guys are saying it's not legitimate. It's not us saying it. We're agreeing with them, I think, at this point. Um, it is a great intellectual swindle. And it does, like you said, Dr. Johnson, swing a, a substitute creator. And I think for the rest of the episode, I'll try to remember to refer to creation as creation instead of nature. I think the Bible uses the word nature to refer to our fallen sinful nature, uh, but it's just culturally used to refer to creation, but maybe I'll try to remember to use it as creation. Let's swing over to our uh, next question. Um, is anyone sure what natural selection means? Well, I've met them. I've met some folks who are dead sure what <laughs> natural selection means, and you talk to them and they're like, it means this. It always means this. It has always meant this. This is the definition. And when I hear them say that, I just think, I can't even have a conversation here because there's no room for argument. There's no room for, for interaction. And they've just determined this is the definition, but we're going to run through a few definitions. And it turns out that everyone, who's, everyone who says it like that, this is what it means. How do you know that what you say what it means is the right meaning and that what all these other guys say and gals say that what it means is the wrong meaning because you're saying different things. And there's different definitions. And actually, we're going to roll through, uh, we're just going to roll through these um, because I think the, the impact of this will come out when, when we hear, okay, he says that it means this, but he says that it means that, this, that, and the other. And this is going to be an interesting ride. Uh, so let's take this journey through the different definitions, the ever-changing, the ever-plastic uh, definitions that, um, that some apply to the word, the phrase natural selection. And our first quote from Michael Hodge, a quite general issue has still received no canonical treatment. What kind of a thing is natural selection anyway? Is it a law, a principle, a force, a cause, an agent, or all or some of these things. The view that natural selection is a law has been countered by the view that it is a principle. While that conclusion has been countered, in turn, by an insistence that it is neither. Stephen Jay Gould goes on to say, in short, Emerson's paper gives us an unintended insight into the confusing lack of definition that natural selection has always suffered even at the moment of its greatest explicit influence. John O'Rice has said, adaptation, natural selection, and fitness are the trinity of terms that form the core of the explanatory framework of modern evolutionary biology. However, unlike fundamental terms in physics, such as mass, energy, or velocity, these terms currently have no generally agreed upon meaning, either empirical or theoretical 
This is obviously a problem. It is by no means a new one. Yeah. Jerry Fodor, who was the philosopher of science at Rutgers University, he's now since passed away, but when he was writing a criticism and why pigs don't have wings in the London Review of Books said, the present worry is that the explication of natural selection by appeal to selective breeding is seriously misleading and it thoroughly misled Darwin. What then is the intended interpretation when one speaks of natural selection? The question is wide open as of this writing. Wide open in contrast to some of the conversations I've had. Case closed, it's this. But look at the literature. These evolutionists are saying, we don't know. We don't know how to describe this. It's, it's wide open. So Doolittle uh, says in 2015, practicing biologists may be surprised that there is still debate about what kind of a force, principle, or process natural selection actually is, on what sort of entities it might act, and the meaning of fitness. We readily invoke, but often cannot explain these concepts. Uh, this is by Charles H. Pence, a philosopher and histor historian of biology, and he wrote this just last year. How should we define natural selection and genetic drift? Are they to be considered as processes acting upon populations or population-level outcomes or statistical identities? If they are processes, are they causal processes, Newtonian forces, or something else? Here's a quote from Michael Hodge. To understand the history of the term natural selection, this is what he's asking, why people starting with Darwin himself have felt themselves able to grasp and feel the concept adequately in the absence of consistent authoritative definitional analysis of the term. So we have, we have these guys saying, we're not sure what it means. So if I were to tell you in conversation, um, we don't have a definition for natural selection, you could take the approach, well, of course there's a definition. There's a hundred definitions. <laughs> but that's really my point when I right. shorthand, so to speak, to say there's no definition. What I mean is there's no consistently agreed on right. definition. It's kind of like when we talk about transitional forms, it's easy to, to blurt out the phrase, there are no transitional forms in the, in the rock record. But what I really mean is there are no undisputed transitional forms. And what we're seeing here is what kind of a thing is natural selection? For the people who think about it, who are thinking about it, they're saying, we don't know what kind of a thing it is. I think it's this. Well, you think it's that. So it's in constant dispute. Um, have, you seen, have you seen that um, in other areas, this constant dispute over natural selection? I've seen people almost dispute with themselves because on several articles I wrote about this, I gave examples where people in the same sentence used it as a cause and as an effect. Wow. And so I can tell that they're confused over that. And so in other words, is, and that's an important point. Is natural selection the cause of these things or is natural selection the result of something? I mean, is a cause or effect? And then other people say, well, it's, no, it's just a concept. And I said, well, no, as we read yesterday, it's a real force. It's an operative force. Uh, these, are, these people who are thinking about this know that's important because you, 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 you can't decide if it's like if it's a cause or an effect. How can you even have a conversation, as you, as you said? And, um, and the fact that there's, there's this ongoing dispute means that we just can't turn to certain sources and just say, okay, well, this book says this is the definition. 
Well, when we do that, you know, in the absence of, of the knowledge of this debate that's going on in the scientific community, the philosophy of science, we could, we could pull out a dictionary and say, this is what it says. Or we could pull out our favorite, this is my definition, this is what should be in the dictionary, you know, and I've <laughs> talked to those folks too, which is fine, you know, maybe it should be. But when we, when we say this is, this is natural selection, then we need, to, we need to justify that by saying, and this is why my definition is the real one and why this actually explains what we see in the real world instead of all these other definitions. Um, so anyway, there is, def there is debate over what it even means, and, and that, that, I think, I'd like to drill into more, a little bit more. You just said that you found a quote where there, someone was using natural selection as a cause, but then assuming it as an effect and what it supposedly produced, and um, what does that remind us of? What, what kind of phrases do that? It's not a, a scientific phrase, right? No, it's more like deceptive advertising. Mm. I mean, in, when you think about in consumer market context, when somebody will use a phrase intentionally to mislead the customer so that the customer is, is distracted from the truth of what's really going on because there's a phrase that attracts them. Something fishy's going on here with natural selection. And, and if you can use it as a, as a cause and you can use it as an effect, maybe you can use it as a magic wand to explain anything. Yeah. Th this car is really cool. How do you, how do you define cool? Mm. Everybody's got their own definition f for what's cool. True. Yeah, and I think I know where you're coming with this. It's, since you can't really lay hands on it, you can't really define it, then it can really almost do anything you want to invoke it to do. Exactly. That's what it feels like. If you can use it as a cause and as an effect, if it works on this, if it works on the we'll see this in a minute, but if it works on populations or individuals or groups or sets or whatever, it, it can work on anything, it can do anything. And again, we're coming back around to this idea that this is a pretty slick substitute creator. But it's just, it boils down to um, just a, something you can't even define, at, at least not consistently. There's no agreed upon definition. I think you summed it up really well when you said, he cleverly hid agency in an analogy. And, and that's what it is. It's, it's, there's no real agency there. Mm. And maybe that's why all of these guys who have thought about it are struggling with it. There's nothing really there. I mean, why else would they be struggling so much? Right. And, in other words, if it was definable, if it was something we could see in operation, this analogy working, I mean, if you could see the pigeons in, <laughs> doing their pigeon things through natural processes, then point to that. But instead, we're, we don't know what to define this as because we don't see, we, we don't see the analogy working. Yeah, and, and it's not just the man on the street who's struggling with this. It's people who actually are in the business, in the field, thinking about it, thinking about it carefully, working with these concepts who are, are constantly thrown off base and trying to define it. So the definition is in constant flux. And when that, when that happens, that, to me, that's a sign. It's an indicator of you don't have something real that you're even talking about. So, so that's... You know, there's a saying that if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pews. And I think that's, you know, you're talking about the man on the street. You know, these guys who are... So, experts on this who spend all their time thinking about it are this muddled, then what about the guy on the street, you know? 
Yeah. Next question that we want to explore, and we're going to let, again, the quotes from, um, from some of these evolutionary thinkers help us answer this. Is natural selection an observable process? So we looked at it. Is it, is it got a consistent definition? Nope. Well, can we see it happening? Doolittle and Inkpen in 2018 said this about it. Many practicing biologists accept that nothing in their discipline makes sense except in the light of evolution. And boy, did I, have, did I hear that growing up in my biology classes. Nothing makes sense except in the light of evolution. Yes, teacher, I'll write that on the test. And that natural selection is evolution's principal sense maker. But what natural selection actually is, a force or a statistical outcome, for example, and the levels of the biological hierarchy, that is genes, organisms, species, or even ecosystems, at which it operates directly, are still actively disputed among philosophers and biologists. Uh, Richard Dawkins said, a gene is defined as any portion of chromosomal material that potentially lasts for enough generations to serve as a unit of natural selection. So he's claiming that the gene is the unit of natural selection. Well, he's from Oxford, but another Oxford professor, Dennis Noble, insists we must shift our focus away from the gene as the unit of selection to that of the whole organism. A really thoughtful developmental biologist, Scott Gilbert, adds, this may allow natural selection to favor teams rather than particular individuals and may also privilege, well, there's kind of a magical word there, may also privilege relationships as a unit of selection. Teams, relationships, genes, individuals within a population. Uh, what about this one? Andy Gardner, 2009, uh, holds that natural selection acts on population groups, and he has come up with a new phrase for these population groups called superorganism. I mean, this is getting pretty esoteric here. What yeah. else you got? Well, Jerry Coyne said, uh, and adaptations always increase the fitness of the individual, not necessarily the group or the species. The idea that natural selection acts for the good of the species, though common, is misguided. And I'm struck by that because we hear creationists saying that God uses natural selection for the good of the species. You know, to protect the genetic purity of the herd. And here's Jerry Coyne saying, no, that's not right. Yeah, that's yeah. not even how you define it. Yeah. Well, there's more. Well, more, more ways to, uh, to express what natural selection might or might not be doing. Another who would disagree with that particular evolutionist is Harvard's Ernst Mayer, himself uh, famous for being an evolutionist. And yet here's what he said. However, in addition to the individual, a group can also be the target of selection if it is a social group, and cooperation within this group enhances its, that is, the group's survival. Finally, gametes, sex cells, are also directly exposed to selection, and different gametes produced by the same individual may differ in their ability to achieve fertilization. Well, the news got bad for Richard Dawkins because just about a year ago or so, uh, a couple gentlemen who are trying to promote yet another unit of selection said, Forty years ago, Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, popularized the notion that the gene, rather than the individual, was the true unit of selection. That view has dominated evolutionary genetics ever since. But in the Society of Genes, biologist Itayane 
and Martin Lurcher say that it's time to replace the selfish gene metaphor with a new one that focuses on relationships. Okay, the list is growing, gentlemen. <laughs> Natural, nature selects relationships, it uh, selects groups, it selects genes, it selects individuals, it selects superorganisms, it selects gametes, uh, eggs and sperm cells, it selects some of these, all of these. I mean, it's like whoever you talk to who's thinking about these things has their own idea of what nature's selecting. Uh, and, and there's more. Uh, Doolittle and Inkpen say that there's a new way of conceptualizing, quote, evolution by natural selection that allows processes as well as uh, things to be units of selection. And uh, here's some more from Arthur Lander back in 2016. What is the unit of selection? Well, the units also seem to get wilder all of the time. Speaking about how engineering principles can inform biology, Evolutionary biologist Arthur Lander of the University of California, Irving, casually interjected, we accept that engineering objectives like robustness and not just phenotypes are the object of natural selection. Wow. So, so they're, they're all over the place. So nature is selecting engineering objectives. So nature's got preferences. It's got a value system. Robustness is better than non-robustness. And boy, isn't it just all over the map? I mean, selection is, nature is selecting all kinds of different things. And it's kind of makes me wonder, is it selecting any of these things? Um, he says, but having legitimately defined the problem, Emerson then launches into an almost rhapsodic and simply illogical claim that almost anything with definable boundaries can be recognized as a unit of natural selection. Quote, Natural selection operates at each level of integration from the gene and complex polygenic characters within the individual to the whole individual and to various levels of intraspecific population systems and interspecific and interadapted community systems and ecosystems. Uh, wow. <laughs> what can it not do? Uh, so then Gould says, they never understood the full logic and implications of the issue, and they ranged indiscriminately up and down potential levels without grasping the theoretical problems entailed by such excursions. So here we have an evolutionist critiquing other evolutionists because they're looking at each other going, you're not, you're not making any sense. Um, you're using this analogy as though it's um, omnipotent. And even Gould recognizes that. You've got to limit what this, what this can do. Well, anyway, uh, what's the, what is y'all's reaction to all that string of quotes that we just read as far as trying to answer our original question, um, can we define natural selection? Can we define it? What we're really asking is can we de define it consistency? Let's take a vote. <laughs> Consistently, well, I, I mean. I think you can define it as snake oil because when they would sell snake oil on the street corner, they'd say this can cure your liver problems, this can cure being alcoholic, this can cure your eye problems, this can cure your whatever. I mean, it, it's, they, they brag as if it can accomplish anything and solve any scientific problem. Yeah, and one of the main evidences for that is they, they claim natural selection is a real observable process. And the problem with that is, 
it doesn't make sense because engineers have made real observable processes all the time. We see them on assembly lines, we see them wherever we go, and particularly if it's a process where someone is selecting something, we can see the selector. We can see what is being selected. I mean, there's, there's no debate. You watch it, you can see it. This is, that is a real observable process. What calls into question the claim, almost, it's almost unbelievable that natural selection is a real observable process, is the fact that nobody can, nobody can see, nobody can even determine what is being selected. Well, one says he's determined it. One says, oh, yeah. I see what's going on. It's in the genes. And another says, no, you can't go there. You, I, I know what's, I see what's happening. I see that it's happening in the individual. And then, no, it's the this. No, it's the that. No, it's the that. So the, the picture that emerges along with what you're saying is because they all see different things. They have to be seeing it in their heads. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's like this, we have a magic wand. It's supposed to be working somewhere. I think I'll say that it works here. Well, I think I'll say that it works there. And so, so because we have so many different um, entities and concepts, I mean, it selects engineering principles. <laughs> wow. Uh, we've gone so far afield. Why is it that you can use this term so plastically? Uh, and, and, uh, and I like what you said. It's, it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a fix-all. Uh, you know, now... <laughs> You know, this really goes to show that this is meant to be a substitute for God. Now they're talking about something called cosmological natural selection, where they're claiming that you get these other universes and they act like, and they 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 are, uh, are subject to population genetics just like the, these other organisms. I mean, it's it is meant to explain everything. You know, I mean, and of course it, it doesn't make sense. I, you know, I don't even know. Um, but they talk about it. They talk about cosmological natural selection like it's a real thing. Well, wow, that's really, that's even beyond engineering principles. Yeah. Now you're selecting for galaxies, and now you're selecting universes, even for universities. Just galaxies, I mean, just way out there. And what yeah. kind of a mind do you have to have to think that through and to have a preference one way or the other and then to make a choice and then to take action to make that choice happen? Wow, that would be like an all, I mean, if you're going to select a universe, that would be a pretty... Pretty all-knowing mind. Yeah, you'd have to be God. Yeah. Yeah. The lengths we go to to push God out of our worldviews, to me, that's where this is leading. Uh, and we're just going to make up incoherent definitions. And we're going you know, to pretend that, that nature can do what breeders can do, and even though it can't, and then, we're, and then we're confused on what it can work on. And so... After, after looking at these quotes, I'm wondering, can it work on anything at all? You know, and, uh, uh, whatever your problem is, this snake oil is the solution. It's the solution. <laughs> it, it, it's, yeah, so what we need then is we need to uh, test it. You know, will the snake oil fix the clubfoot? Let's find out, you know, instead of just making these claims that, that, it'll, that it'll fix it. We want to look at what is a selective Pressure. What are the selection? You know, we see this in the literature all the time, and you're saying you see it even in the literature on cosmology and 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 astronomy of all places. <laughs> um, selective pressure, selective pressure. We just see it and hear it all the time, and it's another way to express the belief in natural selection. Now, if selective pressures are real pressures, like 
me pushing on you. This yep. is a physical pressure. Um, if it's if it's real, if it's measurable, if it's if it's uh, definable, then it ought to be, it ought to be something anyone could point to and say, this is it right here, and it ought to be something that um, you would you would describe in the same way every time for every physics class. Let's let's say you take physics 101, and you know we talk about pressure using the same units and using the same, we work the same math problems and, and everything. Um, is that the case with selection pressures? Um, and it turns out that we're gonna see um, even more dispute and disagreement about what selective pressures may or may not be, how they, what they may or may not select. Uh, so we're gonna start with um, Katie Metzler and Denise DeKunin. And they say, what is selective pressure? The selective pressure definition is an evolutionary force that causes a particular phenotype, now that just means physical trait, to be more favorable in certain environmental conditions. Selective pressures are considered forces that drive evolution through natural selection. Some phenotypes are more favorable than others depending on external conditions. Okay, that sounds similar to what I've heard. Uh, here, here's a statement by Ernst Mayer. He says this, in evolutionary discussions, it is often stated that selection pressure resulted in the success or elimination of certain characteristics. Evolutionists here have used terminology from the physical sciences. What is meant, of course, is simply that a consistent lack of success of certain phenotypes and their elimination from the population result in the observed changes in a population. It must be remembered that the use of words like force or pressure is strictly metaphorical and that there is no force or pressure connected with selection as there is in discussion in the physical sciences. He's not the only one who found that awkward. Robert Reed, who was at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, he didn't like the mysticism that is promoted by those words. He specifically criticized the, the concept of, or the vocabulary of selection pressure, saying, Darwinism makes natural selection a force that actively generates adaptation by a greatly increased emphasis on the creativity of selection pressure. It infests the writing of even the most reflective neo-Darwinists. Selection pressure is now given a metaphorically creative sense by modern biologists who ought to be flagellating themselves for selection pressure. Fuzzy logic is a necessary part of tentative thought experiments, but it should not continue to be used so vaguely into the maturity of a theory. And I get the last quote of our session. To wrap it all up, Robert Reed, uh, he adds, really, he kind of like, summarizes all of his thoughts. Indeed, the language of neo-Darwinism is so careless that the words divine plan can be substituted for selection pressure in any popular work in the biological literature without the slightest disruption in the logical flow of argument. Wow, that is really telling that you can substitute the phrase divine plan for selective pressure. And other than the fact that it would put a God into the picture, it would do the same function. Because when I read the, that, that phrase, I mean, it really, it really comes across as just a, 
a, a magic. You know, you're, it's like you're invoking magic. Uh, because uh, because we because in the papers I read it's mostly biology papers and they're talking about creature features so talking about this trait and why does it have this trait well selective pressures and it's just undefined it's like it's like a magic wand it's like what pressure and what was it pushing on and and we just read the quote where it says selective pressure is just a metaphor there's no actual pressures well then how do you get the physical trait in the actual physical creature <laughs> if it's just a metaphor. Uh, so anyway, these are some of the questions that, that, uh, that come to mind. And we asked the question, what is selective pressure? And we read a few quotes. And again, we get sort of the same, the same idea from all these quotes. Selective pressure, does it have a consistent definition? No. It means one thing to one, in one sentence, and it means something else in the next sentence. And you could swap divine creator or divine plan, you know, for the phrase, if you wanted to, and it would, it would, it would fill the same role. So, well, we, we, uh, we've enjoyed this episode, we've enjoyed this discussion, we've, 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 um, we've looked at um, some basic core attributes of, of, of what Charles Darwin concocted um, when, he, when he wrote his book in, in 1859 and talked about natural selection. Um, and we, basically, in summing it up, I'm looking at the questions we've asked and um, what thinkers are saying about it, and we, it's kind of a negative message because when we ask the question, is it a legitimate analogy? Answer, no. no. And then we said it's not a legitimate, now there are legitimate analogies, we don't think this is one of them because it's supposed to be an analogy to a breeder that has a mind and volition and will and nature doesn't have those things. We asked the question, um, is there an undisputed definition? Answer again, mm -mm. no, it's totally disputed. And it's constantly in flux, which makes us wonder, is it even real? Uh, the, the, uh, there's a trend growing here. You might you, get ready to say no again. Just okay, in, all right. <laughs> just queuing you up here. Uh, is it obvious what nature is selecting? No. Not at all. Um, and then finally, is there unanimity about selective pressure. Do we have uni unanimity about what selective pressure even means? Answer is no, 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 no in all these. And um, that leads us to conclude, maybe when at, the, at the outset we had, one of our first quotes was that, that Charles Darwin performed the most... Uh, greatest intellectual swindle. Thank you. Yeah. The greatest intellectual swindle and um, in the history of ideas. Yeah. And now that we look into it and we're sort of peeling back the layers, we're saying, no, that's not legit. No, that's not consistent. It's just no, no, no. There's nothing in, there's nothing of substance. And so we've got this swindle. And so what has been swapped out for what and why? Nature's been swapped out for God. Is that what? Yeah, I mean, that, that, was, that, was, that was his goal, to explain design without a designer. Well, he never... You're he, right. He didn't come... He was... He was said that was his goal. Yes, but I mean, I think in retrospect, that's... But the effect, the upshot of it yeah. is he must have been his goal. Yeah. Because we have, a, we have a swindle. We've swapped out natural selection for what a, only an intelligent, uh, um, capable creator could have done. Well, it's... Uh, I asked earlier also, have you been swindled? And uh, Dr. Galiza, you were... Yeah. humble enough to say, yeah, I was, and I got to join you in that. And, and I have to say, at the end of our episode here, 
um, what a, it, it, it's like, um, you know, it's like scales coming off the eyes. It's like, oh, that, that doesn't even do anything. That's just an illegitimate analogy. It's not anything real. And so now that frees us up to analyze what's really happening with creature features, with creature feature adjustments, what really happened in the past about how creatures arrived and how their particular features arrived. Um, and, um, and it really clears the path for the Lord Jesus as the creator, who he said he was, and he claims responsibility in his scripture for making all these creatures. And it clears us up to say, ah, every, every attribute of these creatures, he gets the credit for it. And nature does not deserve the credit. And when we start giving nature credit, as though nature and natural processes are doing these things, then we are ignoring all the confusion that exists in the literature about what natural selection does or doesn't do. And we're just skipping right over that and we're giving credit to, and so I'm happy to be done with that. <laughs> and I'm happy to have this sort of the door opened up to a more clear understanding of what the Lord Jesus, um, of the credit that he deserves in having made creatures, uh, plants and animals and man. Uh, any other th closing thoughts or comments, guys? I'm, I'm thinking about how we, we look back on our education, uh, even going back to when we were children, and we were lied to. We were deceived. And it's a very complicated uh, misrepresentation of why creation exists, how it got there, how it operates. And it takes a lot of work. We can't be lazy about it. It takes a lot of work to to really analyze what is really going on, what is causing what. And it's, it's uh, almost comical that these quotes that we've uh, looked at today and thought about, these are um, admissions of party opponents. That's the, the legal phrase that they use in the courtroom. This is something that your adversary is admitting, and yet it proves your case. So th this is very strong evidence that uh, evolutionary uh, theorists are, they're in a quandary. They're, they're in a a very confused situation and they're trying to fight their way out, but they want to keep that phrase natural selection. Uh, you have to have something if you don't want to have a God in the picture. Well, we, um, we've really enjoyed our time. Thank you guys and um, hope it was productive. Thanks for joining us. If you found this helpful, make sure to like and subscribe to be notified of future episodes. We'll see you next time on creation.live.